no doubt a little over a week ago, the citizens of Hawaii were shocked to hear the missile alert alarms sounding. Who knows how long it had been since those alarms and alerts had been used, but the fact that word was coming through, missiles are inbound, sent waves of fear through everyone, wondering, is this it? Well, thankfully, the message was verified to be false. Human error. The wrong button had been pushed. And everybody could breathe a sigh of relief. It's important when we get messages of that magnitude that we check the veracity of them. We verify them. Are they true? Are they accurate? And especially today when we are in an ocean of information that seems to hit us like a tidal wave, it's very important when we hear things sometimes to check out and ask, can I verify this? For example, the, the leading man in Hollywood these days, the top box office draw is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Millions of dollars coming in, his latest film doing very well. But did you know, according to the internet, he died last August. Words went out that Dwayne The Rock Johnson at the age of 45 died after a tragic stunt accident. Thankfully, that message was also verified to be false. When you come to a message as important as the scripture and as important as the one that Amos is preaching, a message that is warning people that if they do not turn from the road that they are on, that road is going to lead to destruction. The question of verification comes into play. Especially when one claims to be speaking for God. That's why the issue of prophetic verification is very important because even today there are many voices that claim to be a prophet. Yet their message cannot be verified as accurate. 2012, one of the best sellers was the Bible Code written by Michael Drosnan. In that book, he claimed to have unbroken or to broken the code found in the Hebrew Scripture that by looking at certain letters in the Hebrew alphabet in certain places, he could predict the future. And so he said that at the end of 2012, a huge comet was going to crash into the earth according to the Hebrew Scripture, destroying all life. In 2012. A lot of people claim to be prophetic, but their message cannot be verified. There's no doubt that when Amos was preaching, the question came, Amos, how do we know what you're saying is true? When we start in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, the question of verification comes into play because his message is so shocking. He begins, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now notice the scope of this message. It's for the whole family. Now Amos is a prophet from the southern nation of Judah. The people of God, that nation, had undergone a civil war. The northern country was known as Israel. The southern country is Judah. So Amos, who is in Judah, is called to go up to Israel and he begins to preach to them this message of God's impending judgment. 
But he also says now, this message is not just for Israel. It is for the entire people of God. Israel and Judah need to hear this because God's message is for all. And you notice how he identifies this whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. He identifies his people as those who had been called up out of slavery under the thumb of Pharaoh, brought out into freedom. And this prefigures our exodus found in Jesus. That just as Israel was set free from the slavery and the oppression of Pharaoh and led by Moses, so Jesus leads us as his people out of the slavery and oppression of sin and death into the freedom that is found in him. So he's saying the identification of God's family rests in God's historical act of redemption. And for us, that is in the cross. So now he begins to speak this message. And in verse 2, he gets even more specific. He says, you, my family, that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only have I known out of all the families on the earth. That's puzzling. Because God is omniscient. He knows all things. In fact, in chapter 1, he goes through a a litany of messages given to all the nations that surround Israel where he identifies the sins in those nations, in those families. So God knows the families of the earth. He knows all the nations. So what is he speaking of here? He is speaking of a unique relationship that he has with Israel. The word know there where he says, I have known you, speaks of a unique emotional and experiential relationship. It is a word that is used specifically of God's choice of Israel to be his people. It is a word associated with election. That God chose them to be his. Amos is simply echoing what Moses preached in Deuteronomy. Up on the screen you'll see a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 15. Moses says, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. He is saying God chose Israel out of all the nations of the earth to be his. He knew them in a unique way in that he chose them to be his people, to be a light to the world around them, to show the glory of God all around them. But that unique relationship, brought about a unique responsibility. It brought about accountability to God. Israel was not saved just to have a status. They were saved for service. The way they were conducting that service to God mattered. In the army or in any military force, there's a phrase that is often used, sadly, Conduct unbecoming an officer. Within that phrase is the idea that once a person has attained the rank of officer, there is a conduct that is expected of them. And when their conduct does not meet that standard, then they are brought in for court-martial. The rank of officer carries with it many privileges, but it also carries with it great responsibility. Our salvation carries with it that same truth. That we are saved not just for our status, but we are saved for service unto God. Because just like Israel, the people of God are saved because of God's gracious choice. 
book of 1 Corinthians, Paul echoes the same message of Amos and the same message of Moses. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Now what calling is that? This is not a reference to a call to vocational ministry. This calling is the calling unto salvation. He is saying, consider your calling to be saved. Consider your calling to be a Christian. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Look at the next slide. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. One more screen. And because of Him, because of God... Because of God. In other words, he has been saying, you were not saved because you figured it out. You weren't saved because you were smart enough to figure out you needed a Savior. You weren't saved because you were humble enough to, to know you needed it. You weren't saved because you were good enough to deserve it. He's saying you were saved because God chose to act and to save you. Therefore, where does the glory lie? What can we boast in? Can I boast in my goodness? No. Can I boast in my righteousness? No. Can I stand before God and say, I deserved this? No. We will stand before God and we will boast in God what He has done in saving each of us by His grace. He says, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus became to us the wisdom, the righteous sanctification and redemption. Just like Israel was called out and chosen by God, the people of God today, all who place faith in Jesus Christ are called and chosen by God not to a position of status, but to a position of service. Election carries with it responsibility. So what is, what's our responsibility? What are we called to do? Are there commands we are to follow? Yes, because we have been saved, we are called to, guess what, love one another. That's a command. It's not a divine suggestion. We are called to put to death what is earthly, sexually immoral, impure, and idolatrous. We are called to be kind and compassionate. We are called to let our light shine. Those are commands found in the New Testament. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And we will be held accountable for our obedience or our disobedience to those things. Once again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, Each one's work will be manifest, for the day will disclose it. Now, the day there is the day you and I stand before God to give an account. And on that day, our works will be disclosed. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Have we been obedient? What, what's been the status of our work? How has our conduct been? If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. That's the good news. You obey faithfully, you do your best by God's power and grace to love, to give, to serve, to be kind, to be compassionate, to evangelize. He says there is reward. That's good news. However... If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. So this is not about salvation. This is not weighing out your good works to say, are you in or are you out? We are in because of faith in Jesus Christ. 
But he's saying that we will be tested and we will be saved, but only as through fire. We will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account. And the calling of the prophet is to remind the people of God of these truths and to live accordingly. That's the role of the prophet. He said, we will give an account before God. Since we have been saved, we are to live in accord with that. And this is no pop quiz. God wants us to do well on that day. He has told us what is expected. This is no shock. God is not a teacher who wants to, to surprise the students with stuff that's not, that he's not prepared them for. He's saying, this is what is expected. You see... One of the verifications of Amos' message is this, that it is consistent with the character of God. If they're wondering, because, you see, they were shocked. Lord, we are God's people. We're not going to be called to account. Because of the shocking nature of that, Amos gives us a verification that what he is preaching is consistent. That's found in verses 3 through 8. He begins a series of rhetorical questions. Questions where the anticipated answer is no. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? In other words, do you go on a trip with someone unless you've agreed to go? You make plans. We'll meet at the Cracker Barrel. Not just at Cracker Barrel. We'll meet at the Cracker Barrel. And then we'll go down to Knoxville. You make plans. Can two travel together if they've not made plans? No. Verse 4, does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? The answer is no. If he roars before he's caught his prey, the prey will be scared away. So no. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? No. The lion roars back in the den after he's caught the prey to scare other predators away so he can eat. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there's no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No. And no. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? No. When the alarm sounds, when the trumpet blares, people are afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? No. God is sovereign over these things. But then Amos does something very unexpected. Verses 7, the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his prophets. The lion is roared. Now, this is where he catches the people. There have been seven rhetorical questions up to this point. That would be the normal speaking pattern. You know how we joke about preachers? You have three points and a poem. Okay, I know those preacher jokes. Three points in a poem. But man, the pastor had four points today. I didn't see that fourth point coming. That's what Amos does. Because notice in verse 8, the line is roared. Who will not fear? No one. He's saying God has warned you of this coming judgment. God has acted consistently with his character. He does nothing without revealing this to his prophets. And the prophets, even going back to the time of Noah, have always prepared the people for God's coming judgment. Even while Noah was building the ark, we are told in 1 Peter that he was a preacher of righteousness, calling people to repentance. In Genesis 12, as Abraham is getting ready to make his journey... God speaks of the Ammonites who inhabit the land of Canaan that one day Abraham's progeny will possess. He says, now's not the time. The judgment on those people didn't come for till 400 years later. That is God being patient. When the time did come and judgment came upon the land of Canaan through Israel, guess what? They come to Jericho, they meet a lady by the name of Rahab who lives in a tavern in the walls. And she says, we have heard of you. We have heard of your God. Please remember me. 
That is God's patience bringing about repentance, which is why God is patient. He warns his people. He doesn't desire any to perish. And even in the New Testament, lest we think this is just Old Testament stuff, God still warns. Up on the screen, you'll see Luke chapter 12, verse 5. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus says, I warn you who you need to fear. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, you'll see it next. He says, these are the works of the flesh, and they are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you. As I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Warning. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. God is not looking to catch us in a bad state. He is warning us to prepare. And this is consistent with his character. The question is, will we heed the warning or not? Will we see the reality? I shared with you before my relationship with my older brother. He's about four and a half years older than I was. And we were little boys. Man, we would wrestle my brother loved watching wrestling on TV. We had a round rug in the den, and he would surround it with sandals and belts and Nerf balls that had been left out in the sun, and whatever you could get to, you could use. He used to beat me like a dog. And Dad would always come in, and Dad would break us up, and he'd look at my brother, because my brother always started it. He'd say, Doug, one day Mark's going to be bigger than you, and I'm going to let you all go at it in the backyard. When I was about 11 or 12, I thought I was big enough. And I'm sure my brother agitated something, and I said, okay. Dad said we could go in the backyard. When I thought I was ready, I'm ready, let's go. And unfortunately, Doug said, okay. <laughs> and we go in the backyard, and he's just kind of standing there, and I, he kind of gets his hands up, and I get mine up, and I'm moving around. And by some mir miraculous move, I made contact with his face with my fist didn't knock him down I don't think it moved him at all but I hit him hard as hard as I could and I'll never forget he kinda looked up and he pulled his fist back and he said we better go inside I did not argue I said, you are exactly right I'll get the door for you warning See what's coming. To know he has the power to do it and to say, I will heed your warning. That is what God is doing here. He is saying, if you continue on this path, judgment will come. And it is consistent within God's character to warn, but it's also consistent with his holiness. You see, because God still judges today just as he did then. Verses 9 through 12, he lists the causes of the coming judgment. He says, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. It's very curious. Amos says, 
call Ashdod, which was a city-state, and call Egypt. And bring them up to the mountains so they can watch the oppression and the violence taking place in Israel. That's very curious. Why would he call these two pagan nations as witnesses? And I think there are two reasons. First of all, in the Old Testament, any accusation had to be confirmed by two witnesses. So he is saying, I want you to call Ashdod and Egypt to come. They are my witnesses to how bad things are within Israel when it comes to oppression and violence. But there's also a second reason. Ashdod and Egypt are believed to have been two of the worst perpetrators of injustice, violence, and oppressive behavior at that time. So he's calling two of the worst to testify how bad things are in Israel. Think of it in terms like this. I love getting little tidbits of trivia from history, like what happened on this day. And I remember back in the summer, I got one, and it just stuck with me because of just, well, here's what it was. You all may have heard of a band that's been around for some time called the Rolling Stones. Okay, They're, ro they're gravel now, but they're still rolling. All right. They're still out there. This day in history, it occurred, and it said that this day in history, the founder, the founder of the Rolling Stones, Brian Jones, who by all accounts was a musical genius but was very troubled. He struggled with drug abuse, alcohol abuse. In fact, tragically, those two things led to his untimely death. But on a certain day, I think it was in August, two men had an intervention with Brian Jones. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards showed up to confront him about his alcohol and drug abuse. Now, when they show up to say things are bad about how much you're drinking, you got trouble. That's what God's saying here. Ashdod and Egypt, two of the worst you could imagine, are going to be witnesses to how bad life is in Israel. That Israel is guilty of doing violence, not respecting the inherent dignity within all of humanity. And robbery, that idea of robbery is oppression where they are looking at how they can get wealthy. Their greed has overtaken them to where no matter how they treat people, they are building up stronghold upon stronghold. And God says in verse 11, thus says the Lord, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses. And from you and your stronghold shall be plundered. God is saying what you have built, what you have built by your oppression and your violence is going to crumble. And then in verse 12, he gives this interesting picture. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Now he's using an imagery from the shepherd field. A shepherd was responsible to the owner of the flock for the welfare of the sheep. If that shepherd lost a sheep, and he came back to the owner and said, I lost one of your sheep because a lion attacked it. He had to give proof that an attack had occurred. He had to come back with pieces of that sheep to show and to say, look, here's the proof. God is saying, just like that shepherd comes back with proof of the sheep's destruction, so will the prophet come back with a corner of the bed, a part of the couch, to show that destruction's occurred. That he's not liable. God did what he could to warn keep in mind that as we read this God's holiness does not change he doesn't change in midstream 
so that now that he would overlook oppression or injustice, or that he would look over when those that are made in his image disregard the value of other human beings. We still have a family game night at our house. We'll meet in Emma's room and we'll play games. And I'm the one in the family that drives everybody crazy because I like to have a copy of the rules next to me. It's gotten so bad that my son Samuel now hides the rules. Because we've been in the middle of a game and we'll be playing and something will, will usually it works out to my disadvantage and I'll say, wait a minute. And I'll get the rules out and I'll look and I'll say, I thought so. We've been playing it wrong this whole time. It needs to be like this. You know what the rest of the family says? We can't change in mid-game. We've got to keep playing the way we have been. That's not fair to the others. And usually I acquiesce to their moans and demands of injustice. Because we'd say it's not fair to change. God's character is consistent. And what he condemns then, he condemns now. And what that means is for the church today, we need to ask ourselves, have we gotten caught up in the, the, the winds and the whirlwinds of our culture where we are not different? Where we see things that are unjust and we see acts of oppression and acts of violence and we, we, we keep silence. In fact, we may even tacitly approve of them because the warning here is that if we do those things, if we do not seek God let us turn so that we value all of humanity and that we live justly, we too will face the consequences. That's what he speaks of in verses 13 through 15, the consistency of the consequences. Here in testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel and the horns of the altars shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house and the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. He says judgment will fall in two areas. One, your religious life and two, your economic life. Notice in verse 14 he specifies that the horns of the altar, this false altar built at Bethel, those horns will fall off. The false altar at Bethel mimicked the authentic altar in Jerusalem in that at the altar there were two horns that stuck out if a person were accused of a crime they could flee and if they made it to the temple they could grab those horns and be granted sanctuary so that a trial could be conducted they found safety God is saying what you think will give you safety won't your idolatry will do you in and the same in verse 15 where he talks about the houses the word could also be translated strongholds these things that you have built up because you've taken advantage of others will fall. The homes will be destroyed. Summer, winter, houses of ivory, great houses will come to an end. And it's a call for us to take a look and to recognize that when we trust something other than God, it will always, always bring about our own destruction. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? In the end, the idols that we cling to can end up destroying us, even as they are being destroyed. Trevin Wax has written a book entitled, This Is Our Time. Within it, he tells about research done by Mary Jo Sells into American girls, not the doll, but American girls, social media and the secret lives of teenagers. She was researching how is social media impacting specifically teenage girls. 
Mary Jo Sales tells about meeting a teenager, a girl at a mall in Los Angeles. The girl looked at her and she said, social media is destroying our lives. So Nails told her, why don't you get rid of it? If it's destroying you, why don't you get off of it? The girl's response was instantaneous. Because then we would have no life. Do you get the irony? It's destroying us, but if we get rid of it, we have no life. Either way you go, that's what idolatry does. Wax puts it like this. If I were to cast that conversation in spiritual terms, I'd put it this way. My idol is destroying me, but if I smash my idol, then I disappear. That is the lie Satan wants us to believe. If the message is verified, then what will you do? Amos has said it is verified because it is consistent with God's character. His judgment has not changed. It is consistent with his judgment, and the consequences are consistent with the character of God. So what we do with the warning? God gives the warning so we can repent and avoid the consequences. That's his grace. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.